And he was maybe two sentences into his like, look at what we did. And I unplugged the USB port from the, <laughs> he goes, what'd you do that for? I said, cause the customer's going to do that. He goes, <laughs> and you know, the whole thing crashes. He goes, we didn't think of that. <laughs> I want to start with who is Eric? Host Steen. Oh man, this sounds like an interview. <laughs> yeah, um, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, you know, I was born a small child. Uh, I couldn't talk. Uh, I was cold and wet. Um, and here I am today. Um, so, <clears throat> what about me? So, you know, at least in context of of this conversation in the podcast. Um, you know, I'm a, what I call a recovering engineer. I uh, always was really good in math and science and then have been trying to spend the rest of my life find, trying to find a personality. And um, I somehow got into sales as my first job out of engineering school. Um, and it's changed my life. Uh, and I'm on this path. And, um, you know, I've done pure sales marketing, sales roles. I've done pure marketing roles. I've uh, been a product owner working with engineers. And uh, I sort of have kind of come to this realization that my purpose in life, at least from a business standpoint, is to make things easier to sell. And that's not just sales team's job. (laughs) I think that's one of the striking capabilities that... um, uh, that comes across when you were talking in some of the previous podcasts and some of the articles that you've written, because, you know, uh, even before we actually go further, something that you said, you know, and, and the way you sort of approach the work, which I found really fascinating. It's one of the reasons why I wanted, wanted to have you, uh, on the, on the podcast was that you have this integrated systems thinking approach where you're sort of thinking about the whole ecosystem and then how one little let's say the butterfly effect, you know, affects and resonates across all those different departments or service lines and all that stuff. So um, I know that you have some background in sales, but you're also, like you said, a recovering engineer. <laughs> and, and I think, um, you know, with, with a lot of the advice that we see online, it's like, you know, specialize, pick a niche, whereas someone like you, more like a polymath who's sort of interested in so many different aspects in which we'll, again, expand and talk about on the podcast is where you have this, like I said, systems thinking approach. So do you want to tell us a little bit, you want to tell the audience a little bit about your background and sort of the different experiences that you've had and how that sort of comes together now? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know how it came together. And even the concept of systems thinking, you know, if you Google it, you'll get some answers. Um, and certainly, um, going through an engineering program, you know, we're trained to think holistically and think about cause and effect and how things are interconnected and first order effects, third, second order effects and so on and so forth. So I don't, I never really did this on purpose. It just is a, it's just as a outcome of my experience so far and, and my sort of, you know, one of the personality traits of a, of a strongly technical person is we tend to zone in on one thing, grab onto it and not let it go. 
And you laugh because it's true. And because we all know people like this and you're like, you know, yo, man, would you just like step out for a second? So um, part of this is through my own frustration of, of, you know, grabbing onto that one thing and the rest of the people around me just being sort of moving on and by force, I guess, just having to take different perspectives on things. Um, it's also a learned trait. Um, you know, I was extraordinarily opinionated, uh, when I was in high school and, and, and college, and I thought that my way was right and everyone else must be wrong. And, you know, just, you know, you run into the real world and you have a couple choices. You can keep pounding on the insistence that you're right, or you can become a little more malleable. Um, but, you know, when you take the time to look at things from a different perspective, uh, or whether that's like, literally, like, I'm going to just look at it from this way now, or just to engage in conversation with people and say, you know, I get the sense that you see it a different way, help me understand, put my ego aside for a second, you know, things just come out. And then, I don't know, uh, strong opinions held held lightly. Um, it just, it's just, um, it serves me well, at least in the phase of life that I'm in now. That is so brilliantly said. I actually, uh, abide by that philosophy as well. Strong opinions held loosely, very similar. Uh, in fact, one thing that you said right now reminded me of something that you said in a previous podcast, which I was going to ask you anyways. So, uh, you said something about talking to the customer from their perspective versus your own. So are there any past, like you said, are there past experiences or things that helped you get to this? Or was it something that you read? Or how did you arrive at this? I just, a fun story from my past comes to mind. You know, I, um, I was a product owner and a bunch of engineers working on this project. My job was to sort of provide the um, design requirements and they would go do their thing. And um, I remember they had a, their very first working proto- prototype and the product uh, the program manager brought it over to my desk and it was a device that had to plug into the USB port for uh, the interface. And he was maybe two sentences into his like, look at what we did. And I unplugged the USB port from the, <laughs> he goes, what'd you do that for? I said, cause the customer's going to do that. He goes, <laughs> and you know, the whole thing crashes. He goes, we didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's it's these little details that you know will 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 kill you will sink you I, you know this company i was working for had a very robust set of documentation around on the on the uh for the process of de- developing a product and one of the documents was called the killer specifications doc and i thought wow this is going to be so cool and I opened it up and then start reading through it. And it was one mundane thing after another. And I doubt that this was on purpose, but my sort of epiphany was, these are the things that if you forget them, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> and it's these simple things like, uh, you know, like I, you know, we do it all the time, right? Our phones plugged into like the USB port on our car. And then, you know, it falls from your lap, of course, right between the seat cushion and the center console. And it's there until you pull over and stop. Um, but, you know, these are things that 
the designers need to think about that uh, oftentimes they call them uh, use cases. I I've call them abuse cases. Like it's not necessarily intentional, but things are just going to happen and you have to design for that. Otherwise the whole thing is going to crash. <laughs> it doesn't matter how cool it is <laughs> right. when it's plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think there's, there's um, another idea that, you know, uh, based on what you were saying was that, and this is something I've, I've observed with some of the perspectives that you've written on your uh, website, SMP. And uh, there's also some stuff and ideas that you've communicated on some past podcasts. Is that now, and it's in the context of that, you know, when you typically look at like sales people, let's say, or take any profession, you know, you typically have those people who are so focused in on what they're doing and, and they necessarily don't know how it affects the other thing, or they're not even thinking about the customer. They're thinking in that controlled environment in which they created that thing. Um, and so, um, Whereas with you, because you're sort of thinking about not only sales and and I think there's this really good story that you described is um, when you were working with a company that was uh, creating uh, a test kit and you had to write copy for them, how you were able to take that language and simplify it. Uh, so is there is there some sort of mental model that you have or things that you're considering when you're thinking about something complicated in the context of the product and then how that would apply to a customer. I was over Christmas home with my family and, you know, I've got four nephews that are, you know, ton of fun. They're, um, you know, teenagers mostly. <clears throat> and we were talking about, it. there's a, there's a really fun uh, video out there where a dad is trying to teach his children how to make a peanut butter sandwich. And, and the, his, the dad says to the kids, you need to write, step-by-step -step instructions on how to make a peanut butter sandwich. And it's things like, uh, you know, take the knife, put it in the jar. So the dad just drops the, the knife into the peanut butter jar and there it sits. And then it says, take the, uh, take the knife and spread it on the bread. So he picks up the knife and the peanut, the jar of peanut butter is still on the, on the, on the, on the knife. And he starts spreading. So he's like following the instructions. Literally. It's funny. Because, you know, these little kids, you know, eight years old or whatever, are having a fit, like, come on, dad, you know how to make a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> I love how you like look at something super complex and simplify it to like, like this example. Yeah. And so, you know, we do, you know, there's things that happen, you know, things in the world that are inc incredibly complex and we need some amazing minds to cut through all that stuff and just sort of get it intuitively before someone takes the time to, and, uh, you know, explain it to, to us lay people. I don't even know what you'd call it. Let me cheat on Google a little bit. It's called simplified technical English. And, uh, this its origins came out of aerospace when folks were trying to write maintenance manuals for how to fix an airplane. And, um, the idea is, is that there are, um, certain words in the English language that have multiple meanings. We know this, right? Right. And then there are certain verbs and certain nouns that um, have fewer interpretations. And those are the ones that you should be using when you're, when you're writing instructions that if you screw up, someone's going to die. <laughs> right. You know, the peanut butter sandwich. Okay. Whatever, you know, we'll go, go have a bowl of cereal instead. It'll be okay. But if you forget to, uh, 
you know, screw the brakes on the plane the right way, you know, bad things happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, some of that also came from this experience, the company I worked for, we had in our instruction manuals for our instruments, the standard for the company was to write these things in simplified technical English. And it's really, it's really cool because, you know, there's rules like it's, you know, one step is one step. You like do this, then this, then this, not bumping all these things in place. And then the other fun thing about that is that, um, you know, there's a testing element to this. It's not just product testing, but also the instruction testing. You go and give it to a, a novice user and you watch where they get messed up. The challenge with this from a practical standpoint is that the person that's right, you know, we all want to jump in and help. And, but it's really important to watch people struggle because that's, that's where there's an opportunity to make it simpler or, you know, remove a step. Um, you know, the Japanese talk about this concept called pokeyoke, which roughly means to error proof something. And the best way to prevent the error is to take the step out. <laughs> you can't what? screw it up that way. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, goes back to sort of the system thinking and design thinking. It's way more than just the thing, but it's the the experience that the user is going to have when they're interacting. And it goes beyond just a physical product. It could go with a website. It could be with the way people interact with you as a human. Right. <clears throat> and you know? by the way, those contexts could be different for the same person. If, you know, let's say they have to use, and I think of one example, I don't know if I heard it on your podcast, I'm sorry, with, something that you've written or, you know, when you're buying camping gear, you're buying it in a very controlled environment in like a mall or a shop. But when you have to put that tent, you know, together when it's raining and it's storm, it's going to end in the middle of a forest where you have barely any light. How are you going <laughs> to? Yep. <laughs> For sure. And how come they never go back in the kit the same way they came out? <laughs> Yeah, like yeah, I envision right some some packaging engineer at Eureka Tent Company thinking, how small can I make this bag? And they get it perfectly fit in there, but it's like impossible to get it back. Yeah. <laughs> so what would be better, right? Is we un undo the tent in the factory and we fold it up like you know, like a fitted bed sheet. Another thing that's impossible to fold properly, and then whatever form factor it's in, like that's the size basket you make. Or a bag you make, that would be way better. Maybe the, yeah, there's a there's a product idea. After this re recording, we're gonna go we're gonna go make a tent that fits in the package it came in. <laughs> it would, that would resonate with so many people. Yeah. <laughs> the biggest feature is it goes back in. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, the world's like full of like these uh, silly or funny or ironic sort of, uh, you know, products and complications that come from using the product. In fact, there's some products that you have to break something off to, for it to become even more useful. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, it's good to have a little bit of your uh, sort of back story in a, in a, mm. in a way in, in terms of how you think about things. Um, and how you have, uh, you know, a background in engineering, sales and marketing and how you sort of think about them, uh, not in these isolated columns, but how they sort of 
cut across each other and how one affects the other. Yeah. Uh, now, <clears throat> so the, the main reason why I actually wanted to have you on the podcast and the, the main topic that I wanted to talk about was fixing culture without fixing people. And this, this mm. is an actual article that you've also written. Yeah. And you've talked about this at length on some others. So, um, in fact, <clears throat> when I was sort of doing some research and putting together some show notes of, you know, how and what are the different areas we can touch on on this, I found a really good quote, which was by Charlie Munger. And he goes something like, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcomes. Um, and after I read a lot of the stuff that you, you know, you've had written across your site and some of the podcasts, you know, that really does capture to a certain degree what you're saying. So I would love to know, uh, you know, in all your experiences, how did you get to a point where you were sitting there writing this article, let's say, or you had this learning or insight? Yeah. How did that well, come about? I don't know. But, you know, like, so back to my DNA, right? I'm technical guy, engineering background. And, you know, when other folks didn't sort of see things my way, you know, the immediate reaction was, they're so stupid or whatever. <laughs> um, and, and it would be like, you know, like this is so plainly obvious. What's, what's the problem here? And so obviously, I don't know. I, I gave up on that approach after a while because I was getting frustrated and people were getting annoyed at me with my the attitude that I was having toward them. And of course, this is somewhat hyperbole for the sake of good entertainment in the podcast. Um, but it was just this sort of notion that um, getting people to change is something I can't do. Um, you know, I've, I've found that I have some of my own personality defects that I'm fully aware of, um, yet they persist even though, and here's the, you know, I, I know that I'm a little overweight. I'm certainly aware of salads and treadmills, uh, <laughs> but you know, bringing it all together, there's, <laughs> there's something deeper that is outside of my personal control. <laughs> and that's a silly example, but we can look at around at our colleagues and, 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 you know, we can recognize that, you know, things aren't going the way that we would like to them to do yet, whatever physical forces uh, or forces that exist in the universe, you know, folks keep on, um, going back to the brownies and sitting on the couch, so to say. <clears throat> and so, you know, the idea that we can just, um, you know, have a culture where, um, you know, folks are nice to one another, it doesn't really help until there's some structure to direct our good intentions. And you know, there's lots of people on the interweb that talk about the, you know, culture and being kind to people and all these things that are really important, but, you know, it's not enough. And um, the idea between this, on this claim is we can fix people, uh, fix culture without fixing people, is that in many times, the reason why people re revert to their lizard brain instincts of self-protection and things like that is because um, that's their sort of last, it's like a Maslow's pyramid of need sort of thing. Like, you know, I, I need to be 
feeling good and feeling safe about myself before I can go work with other people. And when I've got working in an organization where the incentives for my individual performance are inconsistent with the team next to me and are inconsistent with what the organization's trying to prove, like, what are you left to, what are you left with besides behaving stupidly? And I shouldn't say stupidly, you know, behaving in a way that's sort of self-serving to your survival instincts, which is different than what we want to incent, which is we want our people coming to work, doing the right thing, you know, for our customers. But ultimately that has, you know, until if the company doesn't exist, we we're not in a position where we can even go out and take care of, uh, of customers. So, you know, we do need to be mindful of what the organization needs. Um, but um, anyway, all of it has to do with this idea that, a lot of the behaviors we'd say, well, you should think about other people. Well, you know, if I, if my incentives are in line with your incentives, then I don't need to think about you. <laughs> I, I can just go on my own merry selfish way. <clears throat> and, and because your incentives are aligned with my incentives and are aligned with the organization's incentives, if we do all go back to our selfish ways, you know, the organization will uh, move forward. That's the idea. And I haven't seen it implemented in a particular way. I, I also believe that, you know, we there's these two things are re required to coexist. There's a cultural component of things, which is how people behave with one another. And then there's a structural component. Um, and both of these things need to exist simultaneously because just having a bunch of nice people sitting around, you know, that's sort of the Peace Corps. <laughs> like, we're just here to be helpful. <laughs> Uh, but until we have like, okay, well, what what are we going to do, right? So if we just like have the mission in, in place and we hire a bunch of people who, are, who aren't good human beings, that doesn't work either. The idea is that if, we, if, we're, if we're really clear on the purpose of the organization, how it is that we're going to get there, who's going to do what, and then how we're measuring it, that's going to start to attract people over here that says, oh, well, these guys know what they're doing. I'm going to go go join on that team because then I can get the satisfaction of accomplishing something. So my question actually would be to sort of reverse engineer what you were saying and, and put it in the context of some of the frameworks that you have shared um, is so, you know, as a leader who's setting up an org and you're trying to, you want certain results, you know, wh whether that comes, whether that's in context to the revenue or in certain context to how people are behaving in the org. So where do they typically go wrong? And what are the, let's say, the, the frameworks or the key big ideas to keep in mind when thinking about um, uh, those elements from revenue to uh, how people behave culturally? Yeah. So, um, you know, you mentioned the outcome hierarchy, and that's a framework that I've developed um, that links together the things that, um, you know, there are people in this world that just will grab onto and talk only about that. So the outcome hierarchy for the audience has five levels. The top is, is purpose. Um, the next one down is vision. Then we get to strategy. Then we get to tactics. And then the fifth one is, is metrics. So, you know, we all know Simon Sinek and, you know, start with why. And uh, so that's the purpose piece of it. Um, and the idea is that if you have a purpose that's big enough, you'll figure out the how. Well, okay, great. I mean, I get it. 
in theory, but you know, how many folks just need to be told the purpose and then they can figure out the rest. We need a little more. And I also like to say that, you know, I wasn't until my early forties until I figured out a, my own personal purpose and somehow I survived for 40 years. So I wouldn't say it's a must, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there's the purpose people out there. And then there's the folks that talk about, well, let's sit around and talk about what our vision is. And then we get into these round and round arguments over what's a vision versus what's a mission mission, and what about values and these sorts of things. And that's really sort of defeats the purpose, which is, you know, where are we going? What does good look like? Um, are these things smart, specific, measurable, action-oriented, realistic, and time-bound? <clears throat> so there's folks that talk about all that. And then, and then we get into the rung of strategy. And there's, you know, whole courses in business school um, about, about strategies. Heck, there are consulting firms, big ones that get paid big bucks per hour to go work on strategy. And it's probably one of the words that the words that's most mis, misused in the business world, in my opinion. And strategy, you know, I boil it down to choices, like choices and trade-offs. To what? Toward reaching the vision. And so if we're not making a choice or a trade-off, we're not really making a strategic choice. We're just optimizing. Optimizing is good. But, you know, at some point we got to choose. Um, are we going to be... Uh, hospital or are we going to be a, a car repair shop like you can't do both so there's the strategy people but then they don't really talk about whether or not that's compelling like anyone's excited about what it is that we're you know we're our strategy is to give returns to the shareholders well great if i'm not a shareholder how much am i going to really care i'm going to go i'm going to go work with this company over here that's you know uh, feeding orphans or saving kittens or curing cancer. Like that's way more compelling. Um, and then we go down to the action plan. All right. So, you know, we all love the managers who are, you know, off delegating tasks. What we forget is that we all have constraints on our resources. So who does what by when with what resources, what money do we need? What time do we need? What software do we need? What shared resources do we need? Oh, I didn't think of that. Well, no wonder we didn't get the project done on time. So for every strategy that we choose, if it's going to get executed, some human being is going to have to move their arms and do something to accomplish this. And that needs to be laid out. The last piece on the outcome hierarchy is, is metrics. And the anecdote that I like to share here that demonstrates that measurements aren't that important um, is that a uh, NASCAR vehicles and um, uh, Formula One vehicles, their sole job is to go fast. Well, um, you know, if you want to go fast, what do you think you ought to measure, Paul? Well, I think I ought to measure speed. Well, did you know that neither of those vehicles have a speedometer on their dashboard? What? What? For real. NASCAR vehicles, Formula One cars don't have speedometers. And their sole purpose is to go fast. So if we carry this over to the business world, their sole purpose is to be profitable. It would be saying, you know what? We're not going to measure profits. <laughs> right. Holy shit. What? Yeah. So how does that work? Well, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, some folks <laughs> look at a NASCAR fan and they're like, you know, they're not so smart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but you know, it's it's big business. <laughs> it's big business, and you think that they, you know, someone might have come up with the idea. Hey, you know, you think we could, you know, they they've made choices not to put speedometers in the car, given like it's an established technology. We all, you know, use it for the most part when we're driving down the the local roads. But the you know the professionals who are making way more than you and I are in a year choose to choose to run their profession without a speedometer, without measuring the very thing that they're supposed to do, which is go fast. <clears throat> so the idea, right? If you of this outcome hierarchy, you throw away purpose because you know most people of us are just drifting through life aimlessly, and somehow we're alive and surviving. <laughs> and you know the, the NASCAR vehicle <laughs> folks don't have a speedometer like it, the argument that simon sinek says that you have to have a purpose and then all the sort of you know folks out there that are selling dashboards for the next um you know management dashboard what have you like they're they're not a must but if you really know where you're going you've vetted out the best way to get there and everyone on the team knows exactly what it is that they're supposed to do you're going to get there and you don't need to measure. Right. Right. Like Mario Andretti, whatever, like, Hey, I can look in my rear view mirror and know whether I'm ahead or behind. I don't need to see how fast I'm going. So that's the comparison. My job is to be going fa faster around this, uh, you know, this track than my neighbors. So my speed is irrelevant. It's rel my relative speed to the other people. Okay. There's so many parallels here that, um, uh... We can go into, but I want to be cognizant of, you know, the time that we have. And because uh, there's, I mean, like one quick thought that comes to mind is that, you know, uh, the fastest r r sprinter in the world, um, when he's running the 100 meter dash, I know that in, in there, there's some clips of him in, in, because he's a little bit cocky as well, that when he's running so fast, he, he never looks back and left and right. Whereas, you know, people who typically come in second are really trying to look at everybody else. And the person that comes first is just like so razor, razor sharp focused on the end. Uh, that was like sort of one thing from something else. And then the other piece was that, you know, you coming in first or the, the revenue or the profits hitting all those goals, whatever or metrics is if you're doing your job right, then that's going to be a byproduct or an outcome of that. Sort of those two thoughts come to mind, but uh, is there something that you would want to add to that or something that comes to your mind in context of that? Um, yeah. I mean, there's in, in the popular business culture, right? It's like measure, 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 measure. Um, but where does that, that get us? I, you know, I also like to point, you know, I like to say this, a scoreboard and a dashboard are two different things. Right. But would you want to just expand on that just a little bit of what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, here's the, here's the, here's where, here's a baseball is a great example of where things get conflated, right? What, what's on the scoreboard of the baseball game runs, hits and errors. Right. But at the, you know, we don't, we lost the game, but we had more hits. Who cares? Like, so, you know, the hits and errors are dashboard items that in, at least in the world of baseball, somehow end up on the scoreboard. But American football or, you know, World Cup soccer, it's goals. Period. Right. But, but the, but the coaches and the team, team folks playing the team are aware of the sort of 
other key performance indicators, whatever you want, that are measurable, that are going to, if you do those things right, it's going to be more likely that you win. So certainly from a baseball standpoint, we know that if the more hits that we have, the more likely it is that we're going to win. I said a Colorado Avalanche game last July, and and uh, the Avalanche before they ended up ending, ended up winning uh, winning the Stanley Cup last year, they were out shooting their opponent three to one, but the score was uh, like two to one. Like who cares? Like but. You know, shots on goal was great, but, you know, so the idea, anyway, these are just stories or examples from our real world that when we go to work, we sometimes somehow forget and say, oh, well, in the business world, the more things we measure, the better. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, I have one more thought, like this, the last podcast I did with Stephen G. Pope, he is a content creator and he helps businesses create content to get visibility, to get clients and all that stuff. Mm. And I, and and he and he has this one sort of video where he's like, you know, he's like, you know, a lot a lot of people when they start, they get obsessed with like metrics and how many people are watching my videos. He's like, just look at the comments, just see if people are asking you questions. You that's a good sign. You don't need to look at dashboards and measurements and all that stuff. Just see if people, if it's resonating with people, they're gonna comment on it, they're gonna share it, or they're gonna, you know, whatever, they're gonna have a conversation with you. That's it. You're looking, you're looking in the wrong places. Yeah. Um, so one more thing, in fact, you know, when you describe the outcome hierarchy, you know, um, and there is obviously some of these parallels with, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and some of those other, uh, elements that, you know, some of the more basic stuff, you know, the hygiene stuff is going to sit at the bottom and as things get more progressively, more esoteric or, yeah, you know ethereal they become they sit at the top now i see there's a and I, I don't know how you feel about this but i see there's a lot of parallel in how people use business strategy slash brand strategy interchangeably with some of the elements that you have in the out- outcome hierarchy um any thoughts on that um well business strategy and brand strategy i mean that you just you know that there's a lot of landmines sitting in that already <laughs> That's what it, like, yeah, it, that's exactly it. Because a lot of the times I've noticed that, you know, business brand and then, or actually let me rephrase the question. Now in, in the way you sort of have the outcome hierarchy, have you sort of conceptualized that you actually have strategy as one sort of layer row versus, you know, typically when I've seen like in textbooks or in conversation, people use brand strategy as the whole pyramid itself that and so i was just curious how what your thoughts are on, on like the strategy sitting on a row versus it being the whole pyramid yeah well the, the fun thing with the outcome hierarchy we can you know apply it kind of real time in this case right uh brand strategy what's the purpose pause you know and wait for someone to like come up with something and more often than not they struggle at best right but it's usually something like, well, we want, we want people to know who we are and think we're great. Something like that. Okay. That's the purpose. Now we can bring in the vision. Well, how are we going to know that people are going to like us and think we're great? Well, I don't know. We're just going to know. Okay. Like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
are, are you going to measure this? Oh, now we're down, now we're talking the metrics metrics wrong, right? So you can you can you can guide people through these things by just asking these questions like what's your why? What's winning look like? How are you going to win? Why did you choose that path versus the other? What makes you think that that's going to work? <laughs> right? You know, who's going to do what by when? with what resources and how are you going to measure to know if you're successful? So we can throw away these sort of, um, I don't know who you, they call them. Uh, sometimes I hear them dump, called dumpster terms, meaning you can throw anything in it. Like, and it fits. <laughs> I love that dumpster. Like brand strategy. It's a dumpster term. <laughs> like you, you can throw just about anything in there. It'll fit. I love it. <laughs> so the, you know the power of that framework is that you can you can pull it you you can you know one of the charts I have in one of my decks is um, uh, uh, you do an outcome hierarchy for you as a human being you know what is my purpose in life um, how am I going to realize that uh, how am I going to realize that how what am I going you know what's what's winning look like how am I going to know I've realized that. I've got lots of paths to get there, which is the best one. What resources do I need to do it? What metrics do you know? So I can do that as a as a human being, right? That you know that's going to hurt, right? Because now we have to hold up mirrors and do a lot of self discovery and a lot of hard work on ourselves, and it's a lot easier just to blame other people when we're not successful. But you know, if I do that for me as an individual, I do that. Have everyone on my team do that for themselves. We can create one for my team. We can create one for my division. We can create one for my entity. And then if we really want to get heady, we can do one for the world, right? And now we really see how what I'm doing every day fits to accomplish what I want to accomplish, how that maps to what you're trying to accomplish as a human being, what we're trying to do as an organization, and how that's going to make the world better for everybody. Like, it's really cool. I think that, uh, sorry, I, I, I think I might be interrupting your thought here, but I think you talk about this thing called tour of duty. Yeah. Is that, because it's very similar to sort of some of the elements that you're describing. Would I, It would be great if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So tour, tour duty is not my idea. Um, I, I lifted that from Reed Hoffman, who uh, is the founder of LinkedIn and, you know, has a really amazing podcast on now. And he talks about a tour of duty. And it's the idea that, you know, certainly in, the 40s or 50s or whatever the idea is that you went and worked for a company and they owed you whatever for the rest of your life and how that doesn't fit with the way organizations uh, run today and the idea is is that you know when i might want to hire you paul to come join at some company and i'm not making a promise that i'm going to give you a job for life but over some time period you know i have a need for your resources and you have you're going to benefit from being with me and we're going to be symbiotic until that, till things change. We're all, you know, grown up and adults here, but if we can bring an attitude of abundance to our lives and say, okay, well, things ebb and flow, organizations change, things, you know, my skill set is valuable for some period of time, and then we move on. You know, the and it and it comes from, um, you know, the U.S. Armed Forces, where you go have a you do a tour of duty. You know, you're you're being called up to do some certain thing for some period of time, and then you're you're not there anymore. Hopefully, you didn't get killed in action. But 
But that's the idea of a tour of duty, and that if and if that if every organization, when we go through um, building teams and hiring and firing, if we do it with that lens, that my you know I want to create an environment where Paul, you're going to bring your best self to the organization. We're going to do things until there's a natural time up, and then you know things go, and then you might go to a competitor, or you might go to a customer, and then you know now we've got advocates in the world, and it just sort of rising tide lifts all ships. So that's how I interpret this tour of duty idea. And that is, you know, we're, we're, we're here for a short period of time doing something for someone. And then we go, we keep going. Right. In fact, um, when I heard one of your other podcasts, I actually went down the rabbit hole and I read one of the articles that was written by Reed Hoffman. And I think two of his other uh, uh, peers or colleagues, mm-hmm. I guess. And, um, I think the sentiment that sort of in that article that jumped out, that sort of captures what you're saying is, you know, you, uh, employees invest in the company's adaptability and then the company invests in employees employability. Um, so it's more of an alliance, uh, versus, uh, more like a codependent situation. Absolutely. Sort of, you know, based on all the ideas that I heard, that's sort of what came to mind. And yeah. obviously those are the exact words. I'm just paraphrasing uh, from the article. So it fits to the, you know, this outcome hierarchy too. Like, you know, in the this Pollyanna world that I envision where everything works wonderfully. Like if I come to a, a job interview with my outcome hierarchy figured out, and then I ask my hiring manager what his or her outcome hierarchy is, I can like, okay, these things are simpatico. I mean, they're not going to be the same. We're different human beings, you know? And then I look at, well, what's the team's outcome hierarchy? What's your, all right, cool. Like I can see a strong thread here. I want, you know, this works. It works for you. It works for me. This is now we've got aligned incentives and I'm going to show up and I'm going to give my best self. Naturally. Not just because I'm a nice person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think um, so. Okay. So. I'm definitely going to uh, keep this thread alive uh, when, when, when we get into the actual examples. Um, and so one more thing, which was now, you know, so I really like that concept of the outcome hierarchy where right from why you exist and what the vision and mission is, is directly correlated to how somebody on the team would be measured. You know, so you're sort of connecting the dots, uh, not only from a leadership top-down perspective, but also in that you're talking about how to communicate that effectively so that for the sake of example, the frontline worker to middle management to executives, everybody knows what they're trying to do and how each person is going to be measured. And that has a clear, uh, the incentive is clearly defined and that uh, in turn drives uh, culture and behavior. Um, so now one thing, one other idea that you talked about, which I thought was really cool. And I actually ended up spending some time looking at it is, uh, off of the Coracle is the, the round canoe concept. Yeah. So how does the round canoe connect? And for the audience listening who might not be aware of this, but how's the, what is the round canoe and how does it connect to the outcome hierarchy? Yeah. Okay. So, um, this concept of a round canoe, I was sitting in a conference 25 years ago, it was a panel of engineers, one from Ford, one from GM, one from, I don't know what, you know, automotive. And one of the 
engineers on the panel just said, you know, sometimes I'm at work, I feel like I'm in a round canoe and like we're all just paddling and going really nowhere. And man, that just, that visual stuck to me and it sort of sat back here until, you know, I started my, uh, my independent practice seven or whatever years ago. And, um, you know, this idea of alignment between sales teams, marketing teams, and, and product teams, this can transfer to the whole organization, but since revenue solves all problems, or at least hides all problems, let's start there. Um, and the idea was, is that, you know, the sales team is thinking that they're trying to go this way and they're rowing really hard. And then the marketing team thinks that they're going this way and they're growing really hard. And the product teams, the engineers are sitting back there saying, man, you know, those, both those teams are a bunch of idiots. This thing is awesome. I don't know why they can't, why they can't find customers for it. You know, and you, you know, it's funny because it's true. Um, and it's harsh, but you know, it, so it really just conjure up this, this visual of, of, you know, siloed organizations that have their own view of which way they're going. And if you imagine this circular canoe, if you're sitting in it, you think you're going forward because <laughs> it looks like the front of the boat to you. And then, you know, the other team is sitting where they're sitting and they think they're at the front of the boat and they're like, what's wrong with you? The front's over here. <laughs> that is, I can just imagine that in like uh, a 60s movie, black and white. Yeah. Like Laura, Laurel and Hardy and crew, like all trying to. <laughs> right on. <laughs> so it's um, a funny thing that I use to describe the condition that I believe exists in, you know, really a, almost every organization I've ever seen, which is this idea that, you know, the and you, you hear it, right? You know, your friends, your colleagues, your spouses, when you're having a drink or whatever, and you start complaining about your job, it's usually about how the other team thinks they're right. And if they just see it my way, everything would be wonderful. And, you know, I like to use also the, the fable of the elephant and the, and, and eight blind people that wander up to it and are each arguing over what it, what it's supposed to be. The one blind person is grabbing onto the husk and insists it's a spear. Another one is on the leg and insists it's a tree. One guy's pulling on the tree, insisting it's not, no one's wrong. You know, we're just, we're just looking at things through our own limited perspective. And when we take the time to assume that our colleagues are smart and up to, you know, and have good intention and have the conversation, hey, you know, I can't help but notice that you're doing this thing here. And I'm confused by that. Help me understand, you know, if if we're hiring good people from a culture standpoint and, you know, like we're going to figure it out. And you can get around canoe to go straight. It's just a stupid design for a boat. but. <laughs> You know, it requires certain people to be sitting a little bit uncomfortably, um, but to be clear on, you know, all right, I like to say, you know, you know, we're out in the middle of the ocean, we know we need to go toward land. All right, so let's go toward where we think. At some point, there's going to be an island on the left and an island on the right. If we can't pick which island we're going to go to, we're going to be in the same boat. Right, no, that's a bad pun, but we're going to be stuck. We're going to be stuck in the water. Eventually, we're going to get toward the coast and we're going to have to argue like which, where we're going to land the, the boat. I like to say we need to find Customer Cove, All right? That's the safe haven. 
<clears throat> and so we can make progress as an organization. And as we get closer and closer to the goal, we're going to have to have more discussions over, well, you know, do we land here or do we land there? But in the meantime, we can be making progress rather than just sort of, you know, spinning around in the middle of the ocean, hoping we don't, you know, water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. <laughs> I think um, if if I just wanted to uh, summarize one idea and I, I wanted to cross check if I've understood and my interpretation of this idea is um, makes sense. Yeah. Is in a way, and this just struck me now, is the outcome hierarchy is basically giving vision and eyesight to those eight blind people so they can all see exactly what it is and they can all see, oh, it's an elephant. And that's basically what you're doing with the outcome. You're clearly defining for everybody on the team that this is what we're doing. This is what the animal is. This is kind of, is that? No. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, so like, uh, you know, let's take the analogy of, a, of someone building a house, right? I mean, you know, the bricklayer doesn't need to know how to do plumbing. Right. But the general foreman needs to have the blueprint and know what's going on. And, you know, all these things need to eventually come together. So there is a role in the organization for the architect, the uh, um, symphony orchestrator, the, the maestro, uh, you know, someone that's like pulling it all together. And even the maestro, like even the maestro doesn't know how to play all the instruments. They just know how it all fits together. So, you know, there's certainly an element of teamwork and, and coordination here. And it's not about everyone knowing everything, but someone needs to know how it all fits together. Um, you know, the, the punter doesn't need to know how to, uh, you know, sack the quarterback. It's just not a scenario that's ever going to come up. Um, but, you know, everyone needs to know what's going on and some people need to have different views and so forth. But ultimately, you know, if, if the punter shows up to the baseball game with a hockey bat, it's, uh, it's just not going to work. <laughs> Actually, I'm so glad that you clarified that. That actually gives me so much, so much higher resolution understanding of the concept. Because you're right, in, in an organization, as long as your role and what you're going to be measured on is clearly defined. For example, you know, somebody who's doing the bricklaying or somebody who's doing just the plumbing. The plumber doesn't have to know about the electrician. Uh, but I did, it's, it's funny that you use the house analogy. I, I have someone I know and they talked about this concept where, and this is something that happens practically in real life, and this is, you know, might resonate with you as well, is that today, you know, a lot of times when, you know, like a large construction is happening or a house is being built, you know, the one person that comes in, let's say somebody comes in to do the plumbing, they leave the site in a way that the next person that's coming in, it's not, for example, dirty, they've cleaned up after themselves. So you're, so even though you're, you're not, you don't know the other person's skill or their their actual function, but you, when you do your role, you prepare when you leave or when you done, when you're done doing what you're doing, you leave it in a place where it's like easier for the other person to come in and start their thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, which is a challenge that a lot of contractors and people who are in the trade have is that, you know, a lot of unskilled people come in, they'll, punch a hole in the wall to try to come and fix the plumbing, but they'll make like two other problems happen. And it just sort of spirals out of anyways. I don't know how you feel about that. 
Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, good, um, you know, so a, a big chunk of my career was spent at a, um, a Danaher company and Danaher is known to have taken the Japanese manufacturing principles and applied them really well. And, and you know, this sort of idea of an assembly process is that, you know, when it's your time to do your steps, you know, we're assuming that the people that did it beforehand did the things the right way so that my steps can be done properly. And then it's my responsibility to do my steps right so that when I pass it down the line, it, it all works. And we talked a little bit about earlier this idea of pokey oak. And so the idea is that we, you know, do things right the first time in such a way that they don't get screwed up. You know, that's the best way. Um, but now there's process design and product design or whatever that, you know, needs to be done from a systems thinking. Isn't this fun how it all ties together? From a systems thinking uh, standpoint, how everything sort of intertwines and inter intermatches. And, you know, having the critical, conversa critical conversation of, well, you know, is this uh, is this uh, bidet that we're putting in the house, is that really requirement? Because it's also lots of reasons, you know, these are more joints that need to get um, sealed properly and more things to leak and more whatever. And, and I don't know, I mean, my dream home, like I'll know I made it when I have a bidet in my house, but it really <laughs> doesn't serve much, serve much purpose other than, well, that's cool. <laughs> That's the ultimate flex when you have a bidet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, so, so, you know, and that back to the house building thing, you know, we, you know, we, you know, why is this here? Who's going to do it? And what order does it make it? You know, it certainly makes more sense to, um, you know, I don't know, put the carpet in after everyone's painted the walls um, just because it eliminates the um, risk of someone dumping the paint all over. If they dump it on the floor, no big deal. We're going to cover it with the carpet later. So, you know, thinking through these things that can go wrong in the abuse cases and, and building processes and systems to uh, minimize the trouble. Very quick summary is, you know, we talked a little bit about sort of where you're coming from, how you even think about things in like simple terms from like that peanut butter analogy that you used uh, example that you use actually to, you know, you talking about the outcome hierarchy and then, you know, the idea of dumpster terms, <laughs> which I really like, which sort of captured that second uh, half. And again, we talked about the round canoe uh, and then also, um, and sort of where we ended up now is um, getting into, you know, that it's not necessarily that um, all the blind men example have to see what the elephant is it's just that you should know what the thing that's in front of you what you're supposed to do and then how other people can you know contribute based on that sort of conveyor belt um so it's not necessary that the plumber has to know the what the electrician is going to do and the electrician doesn't have to know have the whole architectural plan so those are some really great fundamental frameworks and mental models in in terms of how you think about things how you, the macro and the micro now, I wanted to use some of that uh, mental muscle <laughs> and ideas uh, to tackle uh, some scenarios. So for the first one, and this is something that you actually talked about in a past, again, podcast, is, and it was more of like a throwaway, but I sort of thought that idea was kind of cool, was, you know, and this would resonate also because sort of your background in marketing, sales, and product is that organizations, for example, let's say the kind of organization that I'm in, a marketing or consulting sort of service 
oriented business, you know, you want your, you want to have a buyer centric organization that all the people who show up, uh, who are client facing are curious. They are, they can uncover the client's true challenge. But in some, in, in a lot of cases that doesn't happen. People are very order takers and they, you know, they're just waiting for the client to tell them what to do versus being that true advisor. So the question really here is, I just want to give you some context, but the question here is, how do you take some, an org, let's say a marketing company, a marketing or a consulting and a consulting firm or a marketing agency, how do you get people in that org to think, to become that buyer centric organization and not just not, and, and let that not just be some fluff label because there should be, like you said, there's something that you said was, you know, there's stuff behind the words you're saying. So if you're saying it's a buyer centric organization, how do you inculcate that culture all the way to the person uh, at the bottom of the food chain or, you know, across the org, how do you get people who are customer facing or client facing, but also colleagues, you know, how they can have more inquisitive perspective sharing, you know, not just looking at things from your own perspective. So how do you, and this is a sort of like a really overarching big question here. Um, and I know it, we wouldn't be able to solve all the different elements that this question sort of entails because it's very open-ended. I totally understand. So wherever you want to start and take right. us, you know, that would be great. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, we, we've, we've talked about the outcome hierarchy, this thing ought to exist, right? But if, if that outcome hierarchy isn't aligned ultimately to some people who have money that are going to give it to your organization, I don't care how tight your outcome hierarchy is. It doesn't matter because no one out there is going to give you any of their money. So that opens up the door to this other framework that I have, I call it the three keys, which is a, a short to the three key questions, three keys uh, for commercial alignment. And they are simply these, who, why, how? Who exactly are your customers? Why should they give their money to you versus all their other alternatives? And how do they want to be treated while going through that process, right? So someone in the organization needs to be able to answer that question, right? And we can, if someone's not necessarily frontline with the customers, the, the answers to these questions are still, still interesting. Um, you know, in marketing parlance, we call them personas. Sometimes people call them avatars, but they're written description of a typical person on the customer side who's going to be influencing whether or not, you know, they give you their money. There are segments of people, right? By, by industry, by title, by um, whatever, you know, there's all these things are specific to the situation. But if we can describe through personas and clear segmentation of who it is we're talking about, now we can have conversations about these who. What naturally is the question, why should you, Paul, give your money to me given all of your other options? And that gets into value propositions and, and having that um understood and documented. Um, you know, certainly these things go beyond economic value, right? Because, you know, we all know that the ROI on a life insurance policy is positive because we all die. <laughs> we are. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's lots of folks who don't have life insurance. So it has nothing to do with economics. It has to do with other human values that are either being addressed or not being addressed, or these people have found better alternatives for their money than a, than a life insurance uh, policy. 
And then the third one is how, and that's basically the buyer's journey. And that's the journey that people, we need to take people through as an organization where they start off being clueless, not in a disparaging way, but just because it's a fun word. Uh, they are clueless about the problems that they are having, and they're clueless that we have a solution that can can help them. Until we move them from clueless into a stage that I call curious, where they're like, wait a minute, tell me a little bit about that. This is not a time where the salespeople jumps on with PowerPoint presentations because I'm just curious. I don't, I don't, I'm not here to be sold. Anyway, mapping out this process from clueless through when they actually sign the contract, when they start to consume, and then where it becomes contagious, where they say, I want more and I'm going to tell all my friends. So this is how journey where people move from clueless to contagious. So as an organization, it might not be someone frontline that's dealing with customers every day, but we should know as an organization, at least for the sales, marketing and product team, because they do need to know these answers. Who exactly are our customers? Why should they give us their money versus someone else's? And how do they want to be treated through that, through that journey? Now the round canoe has something to aim at. And we can solve, we can answer these questions with data, right? With real data, not opinions. Or I feel like we can go talk to customers. We can try things. We can get, we can run experiments. We can verify this stuff. So it's not, doesn't need to be subjective. So that's 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 it, right? You know, you have the outcome hierarchy figured out for every individual all the way up to the top in the organization, and you can answer clearly and get the same answers that are, you know, like maybe, you know, you CEO go to ask your sales leader, your marketing leader, and your product leader who are your customers, why should they buy from you, and how do they want to be? You might be able to get an answer, but the, if they all agree, I want to talk because <laughs> we'll go back to ourselves. We'll go back to ourselves. They're aligned somewhere. I'm actually also curious how that would affect depending on the size of the org. So, you know, even sole proprietorships can have alignment problems. Usually we call that schizophrenia. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I like how you describe these concepts in such simple (laughs) and day-to-day sort of... (laughs) But, you know, as soon as as soon as you have more than one person, you know, the fact, you know, the likelihood that we're going to have a different view of the world is is 100 percent. It is certain. And, you know, and and I and I have not even myself. Right. I mean, even though these are uh, out, you know, they're tools that I use for myself with the teams I'm on, with the clients I work with that have developed over time through my own experiences to help people move in a better direction. I, you know, I also think of, of, you know, it's a messy world and we're messy human beings. And I think of it on, on a, on a spectrum of what I call best practices continuum, where there's bad practices on one end and perfect practices on the other. And since perfection doesn't agree, net doesn't exist, we're never going to get there. And it's only really wrong if, um, if what you're doing is putting yourself or one of your employees in jail or in the hospital. But if the lights are on and you're able to make payroll and do it time and time, congratulations, you're running a business. <clears throat> the things that I talk about um, are to help people move toward better. Um, recognizing that doing it perfectly is impossible. And oh, by the way, the second you do have the who, why, and how figured out, um, the market's going to change either because 
um, something's happening with the customer uh, or uh, competition's going to come along and, and change the landscape for you. So you're never, you're never going to have these answers perfectly answered, but um, you know, striving in that direction is what, um, what, what gives, you know, when I talk about alignment, it's about being aligned amongst something and aligned to something. So we can have people in the orchestra all agree what a C sharp is. And when they blow their horns, they play the C sharp. But if they, if one person is playing Bach and the other one is playing Van Halen, it's not going to sound good, <laughs> even though they're un, in tune. Right. So we right. need to be aligned amongst and two. And so the who, why, and how is, is the two. Um, and then, you know, the outcome hierarchy helps us get aligned amongst. And I just had that epiphany. So. Wow. <laughs> right on the podcast. <laughs> Exclusive. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> no, brilliant. Um, I think, uh, there's so much, uh, uh, brilliant stuff that uh you've talked about and concepts and ideas and ultimately um i think the end goal the outcome of you know or the idea behind all of this is to not be from a sole proprietorship not be schizophrenic and then how that might look like you know from a larger organization how we align to and amongst uh that you talked about so i think um are there any other sort of lingering ideas and thoughts um, that you would want to put a bow on all of this from your, any concluding thoughts and ideas. And then I have one fun final activity to do with you. We'll take like 30 sure. seconds. All right. Yeah. You know, so um, these concepts and things that we've talked about today, um, you know, they're, they're simple in nature, um, but getting them implemented is, is something I'm still working on. And, and when I have one-on-one -on -one conversations, uh, people are like, Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But like, you know, actually getting it done is, is something that I haven't figured out how to do yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, taking small steps, moving in those directions, um, you know, it, it, uh, it, it's helpful. It's helpful. I really like the fact that, you know, you're sort of very, pragmatic in everything all the ideas that you've shared you're like well this is going to be hard this is going to be difficult i mean of course you know like uh, like and you're even very so candid you're like even i haven't figured everything out but you know this is if if this is the if these are the kind of challenges you're having this is where you need to at least look and um it's not about more foosball tables <laughs> In fact, um, one final thing I had was, you know, as I was thinking about sort of this, you know, uh, uh, outcome hierarchy, you know, the, the round canoe and tour of duty, um, some recent examples. And again, you know, if we, you want to completely leave them out, we can, but if you would be interested, you know, something that like, let's say the Coinbase, I don't know if you're aware of that company they did, where they had a lot of internal uh, cultural problems, but then you know, the CEO, are you aware of that? Coinbase? Yeah. And what the CEO did a couple of, uh, like last year, what he did, are you aware of that situation at all? I don't know. What did he do? So they had a whole bunch of like culture problems where, you know, there's like a lot of woke 
conversation happened. And, and I think he had to take the strong stance of saying, look, we're here to work on this product and this is our vision. This is our mission. All this stuff you can do outside of work. Yeah. And if you still feel very strongly, here's a severance package. And if you don't align with this outcome hierarchy, you can leave. And initially he got a lot of backlash and a lot of people, but now he set the precedent now. And anybody who's in this sort of space or like, look at this amazing thing that he did. And he, you know, improved the company, the culture by just taking some of those very difficult steps. Um, I think Twitter, as we're seeing, is sort of going through similar motions. There's a lot of controversial uh, takes and ideas and, you know, <laughs> yeah. but you know, the necessary steps to eliminate culturally people who don't align with what the new vision and mission is and giving them separate, but whatever that looks like, I don't, I don't have all the intimate details, but, uh, and then releasing product very quickly and testing them out and being very open about, we're going to suck at a lot of stuff for the next few months till we figure stuff out. Uh, so there's just some examples based on some of the things that you talk about that I found, which were, uh, sort of what people are trying to do. Of course, like you said, you know, it's hard, it's difficult. And it, you, it, it, and by the time you actually might even implement all this, it might take some time and then the market changes. I'll just comment on the, I don't know all the details of Coinbase, right? But, but uh, you know, that's an example of, you know, you could, you could see where the CEO is saying, okay, this is, you know, here's, it wasn't done this way, right? But here's the outcome hierarchy. You can choose your tour of duty here or elsewhere. Right. And and any smart CEO knows that the war for talent is a big one. Right. And if you're not creating a compelling product, wink, wink, your culture that's going to attract people, you're not going to have the enough who to do what by when with the right resources to accomplish your goal. So this is the beauty of the framework is that it just allows for transparency and and uh, with that, a more fluid market oriented response where, uh, you know, the labor economics is like, you know, I can spend my labor, I have choices, right? I can go work for company A or company B, and I'm going to go to the one that better suits me. And if that's more money, great. If that's because you're saving kittens, better. Like it it just leaves room for diversity and, and inclusion and and all these things. And I don't know. You know, I like to also point out that if you go to Amazon and and I, you know, type in sales book under books and hit search, you get over 80,000 results. That's 80,000 people that have thought to sit down, you know, that not only have their own opinion but thought enough to sit down and write it. Like so, you know, there's there's not 80,000 equations for um um profit, right? Profit equals Revenue minus cost. Like there's not, we don't need 80,000 books to talk about that. It just is. <clears throat> but this notion of how to sell, how to manage, how to lead, there's examples of way to do it well, and there's examples of how to do it really poorly. But like if anyone had one way and it was perfect, there wouldn't be 80,000 books. <laughs> right, right. I think the irony there is that, you know, what somebody else has done, you can't go down that path. You can look at them as examples and inspiration, but you're going to have a different path, different temperament, different, you know, interpretation, perspective, life experiences. And so even though all that exists, you really can't copy. Uh, at best, you could probably emulate. Well, it's, it's, the line is just be yourself because everyone else is taken. 
All right, Eric. So this has been a super fun conversation. I've definitely learned a lot. And, you know, maybe we can bring you back in the near future to talk more about some of these concepts and maybe dive deeper into one specific idea. Uh, but for now, uh, definitely a lot to think about, to let the brains do over some of these uh, interesting ideas. Now, one activity that I do with all my guests is, is from this book. It's called 3001 Questions All About Me. All right. So you're going to basically pick a number between one and 3001. And I'm going to ask oh, wow. you a question cool. that where we land and you can try, you can either pass and I can ask you a different question. Uh, or if you feel comfortable, you can answer that. So any number between one and 3001. So I'm going to tap into my engineering roots, uh, 42. 42. Okay. Uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Gal Galaxy is the answer to the ultimate question of life. <laughs> so the uh, the technical uh, nerds on the on the on the call are going to um, it'll resonate with them. Forty two. Okay, because I'm not so I, I I don't have the full context, but um, but the question on number forty two, and this is ironically funny that the question is, what's the thing I'm least afraid of? What is the thing I am least afraid of? Mosquito, uh, snakes? I don't know. I mean, I feel like that I'm least afraid of. That's a pretty deep question. <laughs> least afraid of. Um, coming onto podcasts and sharing my ideas. How's that? <laughs> if, that if that's the answer, then that's the answer. Right. <laughs> um cool so this was super fun um eric talking to you and My learning pleasure, and learning about all these cool concepts and um um i'll put all your links oh by the way before we actually uh, uh close can work if people had to reach out to you and wanted to connect with you what are the best places to connect and how to connect with you yeah so um the key is to spell my name correctly um, and if you do so, I am the only one on the, in, in the Google universe. So I'm findable. Um, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I've got my phone number and email on there too. Uh, and, uh, tell me you heard, um, heard me on this podcast. And so I have some context and we'll connect and I'm happy to share ideas debate this, find better answers, what have you. I'm on this journey, just like everybody. <laughs> Love it. Okay. So yeah. So for the audience listening, um, I will still do some of that legwork and put all the le relevant links to your website, some of your articles and your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So if anybody's interested, they can just click that. Or if uh, they want to satisfy some of, or quench their curiosity, they can Google Eric's name to see he is the only one. If he is the only one. Thank you so much, Eric. Uh, this was a pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. And Thank you, Paul. I will see you online. Yeah, bring me back whenever. I'm curious how you might apply this in your world. And No, absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely going to be sharing. In fact, I have already been to be honest, sharing some of your thinking and ideas with colleagues and friends and, and passing, passing along some of your work to them. 
because uh, it really resonated with me. So, all right, have a good day. Thanks for having me on the on the show. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Ciao. Bye. Thank you.